The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. I bet you are expecting me to begin this podcast with a poorly made pun about winter. That would be ice, wouldn't it? This is totally (laughs) sub-zero. Welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arta. And, and, I'm just gonna and talk like to, I'm gonna no. It's I was gonna say I'm gonna talk don't. like Arnold for the entire thing, but that wasn't even talking like Arnold. That was just a really bad impression of Arnold. So. I think we will eventually be doing a movie called Batman Sub Zero because I think there was a Batman the animated movie um, with Mister Freeze that got some limited theatrical release called Batman Sub Zero. Believe it or not, I I, think I seem to remember something about that. I mean, certainly the animated um, stuff has certainly done the best justice by by Mister Freeze. Well, yeah, and there's, you know, they, you know, to peek into the future, there is there there is going to at least be Mask of the Phantasm, which was uh, theatrically released, which also occurred to me, hey, total sidebar, you know, how there are all these movies we haven't done the sequels to, like The Crow 2 and Superman. There's so much we have to get to um, because sometimes you have to review the superhero movies that are crappy sequels. That is sometimes our responsibility. Case in point, today, where we remove, we remove, we wish we could, we review every superhero movie ever made, we are reviewing- Including 19, this one. 1997's uh, Batman and Robin. Uh, this uh, came out in 1997. It's the fourth in what is called the Burton-verse. It is still the same universe, ostensibly, as the Tim Burton 1989 Batman. It is the last of the films released on June 12th, 1997. Uh, budget of, of I'm just going to put this out there right now. Budget of 160 million dollars, a box office of 238.2 million dollars. Now, the rule of thumb is that in order to break even on a film, you need to do twice your budget because you assume that a certain amount extra, in addition to your budget, is going to be applied to marketing, and you also assume that a certain amount of your box office is going to be going back to the theater owners. So the rule of thumb is that to make your money back, you need to make twice your budget which would be $320 million, which would put this movie $80 million short. We have gone from an $80 million Batman that made all the money to $160 million Batman that lost the entire budget of the first Batman movie. So that's where we are in terms of the Mm -hmm. Batman movies. Um, Many things to say about this. You and I talked, uh, well, first of all, let's call a spade a spade. This was not the totally super that we were going to record, ladies and gentlemen. We, in fact, recorded a different show, did we not? Sure. Yes. Uh, um, we uh, we mourn the loss. Um, a moment of silence for the Spider-Man Far From Home podcast that we recorded. The extra long hour and 40 minute Spider-Man Far From Home podcast that we recorded. Uh, that was lost due to computer error. We we grieve for the. Um, it it will we be do, a cold although, day li- in. It will be a cold day in hell before we do that one again. No, we will eventually. But you yeah. Were although listeners, really, I wasn't on my best game. You, you weren't missing a ton on my end. I think you're always on your best game, sir. Um, unlike Joel that's, Schumacher. <laughs> I, I know film. you mean that as a compliment, but that's actually rather that's uh, that's a bit concerning. The thought that, yes, oh God, no, I, like on any day that I'm off, I'm like, oh God, what if this is my best game? 
Yes, on uh, you know, I've never seen it where you seem to be trying hard and doing a good job, but I no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, it's so easy to talk about lackluster performances today because we're reviewing yeah. Batman and Robin. Um, yeah. Okay, so let you me know, ask here's you the, I want to start off with Batman and Robin. It would be extraordinarily easy. Um, a, a work of child's play, one might say. Uh, literally reviewing 101 to just talk for the next hour and a half. In fact, we could probably go on for six hours or so about all of the things that are wrong with this film. But you know what I'm going to give myself as a challenge today? I, I, I yes. will talk about some of the things that I don't think worked. I'm going to, over the course of this podcast, talk about some of the things that I think did work in the film, as well as some of the things that almost worked or could have if they had gone in just a different direction. That That is my I will, goal. I will allow it. And I will probably you, be able to fill four minutes with it. I, yeah, I will allow it, as long as we are clear that what you're doing is an exercise and does not represent the whole of how you feel about the film. Because if your point yes, is... Agreed. That it's you think it's a really good film and you're going to prove it to me. Um, <laughs> I think this, if that were my point, let's be honest, this would be the last episode of the podcast that we would ever record. Is this the most hated superhero film ever? Made? The most hated, you said? The most hated, the most derided, the least respected. Is this Probably. the worst it ever gets? I'm trying to yeah. think of other films that can be placed next to this. Um, I mean, even ex- like, look, there are films like, I'm guessing, like Superman 3, Superman. And four quest for peace they were also not great films they might have they might actually i mean i haven't seen them in 30 years if i go back and watch them i might think you know what these are just as bad as batman and robin however uh you are right in that batman and robin certainly are it, it is the film that is the most publicly derided in the superhero canon i think like Superman think Superman, 3 is just, Superman 3 is forgotten in the waste bin of history. Batman and Robin well, is Well, that's still... the thing about Superman 3. Superman 3 is, I don't think Superman 4 is. Superman 4 is is remembered as a franchise killer. Another part 4 that killed another DC franchise. Um, uh, you have, I think that the, often you have the movies which are the, the franchise killers that are that, that are remembered in this way. Certainly, um, I think that X-Men Origins Wolverine is remembered this way, although it was not a franchise killer. X-Men Apocalypse, mm-hmm. remembered this way. I think that Dark Phoenix is more of a fizzle. Um, trying to think of other superhero films that, like, the Crow movies, they just kind of petered out after a while. Blade 3 is, is a petering out. Um, yeah, the and, and the, Spider- thing is the expectation Spider- wasn't Spider-Man 3, high for a Sp- lot of those. Yeah, Spider-Man 3 had a lot of expectation. I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as this, but had higher expectations of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that this film, and correct me if I'm wrong, this film is as bad for the badness of the film as it is for the confidence with which it is putting forth the badness. It is the definition of hubris that this film is like they're that, going, yeah. look, at, yeah. I think that's the uh, the real question as I'm watching this, and I guess we, you know it's left up to the viewer, is all right, did, and this is a question because we're definitely going to be talking about the concept of camp in this, uh, in this episode. Um, the question is, did they know that what they were doing was camp? Um, did any part of the production team realize that they were doing something that was quote-unquote bad, or at the very least silly? And I think an argument can be, like, it, it is very possible with this film that an argument can be made that they were like, nope, nope, this is uh, this is our this is our A-game here. Yeah, I think that there's, the camp question is one that needs to be asked, um, and we're going to get there, but I want to ask you, have you seen this movie before this this recording i have success so here's the thing i successfully avoided this film until literally the past week now again um and so then i rented it on google play 
started watching it. Um, and to to be fair, it was not just the fact that the movie was bad. I'm also extraordinarily busy right now. Um, I stopped about halfway through, had a couple opportunities to get back to it, but there was always something more pressing. Ended up having to re-rent it on Google Play because it expired. So I have rented this movie twice in order to get through it for you, the listeners, because I care. And not to outdo you, Arthur, I purchased this movie oh, on Amazon. Oh, I bought sir. this film for $14.99. I have give, between the two of us, we have now given $22.99 to Warner Brothers for this film, <laughs> possibly encouraging them to make more like it. Um, this is, yeah. Um, I remember this film. I remember this film. It came at a really interesting time because if I remember, I believe this came out the same year that Mortal Kombat Annihilation came out. And I remember the theater in which I saw it. Um, and I was living in the same place. So I kind of remember it being the same theater. Um, but I remember the banners. And if you look at the cover of it, you see all five of the main characters, you know, in a big, almost an X-Men, there's an X on the cover. But when you went into the theater, you just had a big giant banner, the size of like, like, like the size of an entire wall that just said Robin and a picture of Chris O'Donnell with the red behind him. And they go to the next wall and says, Mr. Freeze. And it's got, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger with a whole wall behind him. They had the movie theater decked out for this this was the thing that summer when you walked Mm -hmm. in you could feel the energy that they put forth in this they this was batman you have to remember batman forever we look back on it and see its problems but it was a hit it did it it, it was a huge hit um and remember i said it was the best one it's not um, so when this came out, it was another Batman movie. This was a tentpole movie of the summer. Now I will say mm-hmm. that I did not walk out of this film. I did walk out of Mortal Kombat Annihilation, one of the very few films that I've ever walked out of and walked into mm-hmm. a film I had no intention of seeing Anastasia, um, which was a much better film. Uh, mm-hmm. so when I got to this and I'm watching this movie, I don't know if it came before or after this is one of the first times, something that I would experience two years later when I saw episode one, the Phantom Menace that I walked in and I the, I spent the first half hour of the movie making excuses for the movie in my mind because I want to like it as much as I do. I loved mm-hmm. Batman. I was still a comic book fan. At this point in my life, I this came out what in June, what did we say? June 12, 1997. I had gotten married literally three years prior. I was 21 years old at the time this came out. And you're a bit younger than I am. So how, are, how old are you in 97? 97, I am 17. You're 17. So you're just coming into into high school i clearly this was not something that was on your radar enough to want to know by june by june i had just by june i had just graduated high school and was going into college yeah just graduated high school going into college you know a theater kid a you know you of higher mind yeah i'm sure let me put it this way anastasia was the like i was the the theater kid anastasia was the film i was looking forward to that summer yeah it was it was a it was a big like like a big bombastic superhero movie not your speed totally my speed and not not a lot else coming in terms of big bombastic superhero movies there had been some failures there had been you know we'll talk we can talk about right now val kilmer turned around and tried to do the saint there had been the phantom there had been you know other attempts but nothing was doing what batman did and here he was back with of all people at the lead arnold schwarzenegger now did you watch batman the animated series i did and were you familiar with the 
incredible episode about Mr. Freeze from that from that series. Oh yeah, you can uh, you can find on YouTube. There are some uh, there are some YouTube channels that talking about all of the amazing things that Batman the Animated Series did for uh, the Batman franchise in general. And at the top of so many of their lists is before the animated series, Mr. Freeze was just a straight up bad guy villain, and they gave him this fantastically uh, dark and sad backstory that was just oh he's he is one of the he is one of the best reluctant villains well not reluctant villain but sympathetic villains in the Batman canon because of how they treated him in the animated series well and I would say I would go a step further I did not know Mr. Freeze at all prior to his incarnation in the animated series and the voice actor does him with kind of a droll voice like this just melancholy and sad and and it's just like like that's how I knew Mr. Freeze and I had never known anything about Mr. Freeze except for that so when they said mr freeze i knew exactly who they were talking about of course i was following the production of movies this is Mm -hmm. um this is not quite pre-internet internet Internet did exist i did have a computer at home with internet on it i was recording music with my buddy matt barnson uh we were able to send songs back and forth overnight to each other that we could work on that were 50 whole megabytes and only took seven or eight hours to send over the internet so i knew what the internet was but i was still reading my entertainment weekly my premiere magazine cinefantastic all those things that had the production of genre movies and i followed this religiously everyone was back and i was hearing about the casting i knew uma thurman of course i knew her from pulp fiction i loved her there i knew alicia silverstone mostly from the aerosmith videos i had not seen clueless um i knew chris o'donnell i did, did not watch er but i was familiar with george clooney and everybody said oh he's very charming and i was like okay he had a movie that came out right before this um and i think it was him and michelle pfeiffer that came out earlier that summer that i watched um, just because I like knew that he was going to be Batman. Um, and I was like, oh, he's pretty good. The name that bothered me the most going into this was Arnold Schwarzenegger because I knew Mr. Freeze from that show. And 30 years so, later, Arnold Schwarzenegger is definitively the best thing about this film, in my opinion. Um, I, You know, it's interesting. He is the best. He is not the least worst, if that makes any sense. Oh, 100% <laughs> agreed. Yes. Uh, um, uh, you'll be surprised, I think, when we come to the end of the film and I tell you who I like the best in this film, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, all of that being said, there's a lot to dip into. Um, I could, we could go through. I told you the stats. Um, su- suffice to say, let's just put it this way. This put the Batman franchise out. Batman was done. Superhero movies were, for all intents and purposes, done. If it had not been mm-hmm. for X-Men coming out three years later on a budget of nothing, there wouldn't be superhero movies as they were this killed it and that being said that being um, said i i have uh there's uh, a plot you have to read yes yeah so i was yes i know so i was uh i unfortunately did not have time to put together my my oh so insightful um and well thought out uh plots uh he says facetiously um but justin bless him uh actually did put one together which he has asked me to read uh which i'm excited about because this is really definitely this is this is a half plot and just half straight up commentary um yeah there there's whatever no do way. you mean uh yeah <laughs> 
you are so, like they're there i mean my first thing i was just like wow you're not really objective about this at all and then my other thought was there is there is no way to be objective about this film so with that in mind batman and robin <clears throat> batman and robin have become the designated protectors of gotham city and have managed to rid the city of all crime and darkness allowing it to be engulfed in peace justice and primary colors and art design like a dr seuss drawing on ecstasy enter mr freeze whose quest to cure his dying bride has left her in a cryogenic coma with him unable to survive outside of the frozen confines of his chrome-plated cryosuit, which is powered by diamonds and narrative convenience. On his own, he is constantly thwarted by the dynamic duo, sometimes escaping with a bad, or good, one-liner, depending on your point of view, and eventually captured and placed in Arkham Asylum. Fortunately for him, though unfortunately for the audience, he is joined by Poison Ivy, an eco-terrorist with venomous lips, control over plants, love potions, pheromones, really every superpower you could need, excluding subtlety or realism. Ivy also comes equipped with her sidekick, Bane, a strong guy pumped up like a beach ball with venomous super stuff. She and Bane break out Mr. Freeze and begin their plan to destroy all mankind with a new Ice Age. Now, see, Freeze is under the impression that Batman killed his wife, when in fact it was Ivy, who apparently was super jealous of Freeze for some reason. And now, he wants to kill everyone with ice, which will somehow spare the plants because, again, reasons. Which is really too bad because the heart of this film, Alfred is dying of the same super rare and super convenient sickness that Mr. Freeze has been able to cure, except that Alfred's stage, uh, or except Mr. Freeze has been able to cure Alfred's stage one, uh, he has cured it and carries around the exact cure that Alfred needs in his suit, because reasons. Alfred is also joined by his niece, Barbara, who is somehow 60 years his junior, and who is able to hold her own with the Caped Crusaders, because they teach a lot of martial arts at Oxbridge. Anyway, she finds the Batcave, and Alfred, in the guise of Max Headroom, has designed a bat costume for her that, when combined with the bat nipples and the fact that he is a surrogate father to all three of these crime faders, makes this all very uncomfortable. The point is, Ivy seduces the boys. They fight, then they're better and get over her, then they fight again it seems, but no, that fight's all a trick. There are rockets and sky surfing and suddenly all of Gotham is frozen until it isn't because Batman can literally harness the sun. Ivy dies, except she doesn't. Freeze is defeated. Ivy gets her comeuppance and then the trio of heroes run away from a spotlight and any future whatsoever of a sequel. Fiend? Question mark? <laughs> so, yeah, um, I'm I'm not bearing the lead, and I don't think here's the thing. You could say I'm not being objective. I think this is objectively what you can say about the film. It it does. Uh, I don't know. Um, All right, so here no, I let me let me yeah. start with this one. So the, this was the first it's thing crazy. I read within 15 minutes of this. Talk about expect um, how important expectation is. Um, and, you know, we can certainly, it, there, there is room for debate and conjecture as to what they were trying to make this film, but there is very little debate as to what this film ended up being, which is just utter nonsense. Um, however, the original Adam West Batman series, and certainly the film, was in its own way a whole lot of utter nonsense. I mean, sure. that was, uh, you know, I mean, you've got, so, you've got a scene where I think it's Robin running around in the old Adam West thing with Robin running around with a big black bomb with a fuse uh, around it trying to throw it away and suddenly there's a lady with a you know with a baby in one thing and then she runs and there's a bunch of school children in the other thing and then he stops and practically looks to the camera and goes some days you just can't get rid of a bomb 
Uh, I mean, it is camp to the highest extreme, and it's a delight of a film. At least, I mean, it's not a, a the old one. It's not a good film. It's a delightful film. No, I think it... part of the delight is that they knew what they is that they knew they were just creating something stupid and fun. Um, and there I are a far, lot. I, was, I would go so far to say that the Batman film from the '60s lacks a lot of the joy that the Batman TV series had because it clearly had a bit of a higher budget. It had more going on. And Mm -hmm. where the TV series was clearly just the same room and different lighting all the time, it had Mm -hmm. a, a real art deco charm to it that I have long felt did not translate to that film um, mm-hmm. very well because the film somehow went outside of its television box and outside of the box of what they're able to do on TV and with its larger budget, somehow that film lacked the charm. So it feels to mm-hmm. me that if you amplify the budget further, maybe what you're getting is this. Anyway, go on. I, you know what? I think that's a very accurate thing. The uh, So it is... Um, it is very, very clear that this film did not succeed in its supposed goal of being a serious uh, successor to Batman Forever, let alone being a successor to Batman or Batman Returns. The question is, does it in any way succeed as being the kind of film that you just might, you know, want to watch drunk or high some night? Um, and on that one, I I still feel the answer is no, but it's, but it's a less hard no than whether it succeeds as being a true sequel. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think a, a lot of it just, to, and so we can go through and talk about the different characters. And I feel like um, there were certain people in this film that knew what the film actually was and tried to play into it and succeeded. There are others who knew what the film actually was and tried to play into it and failed. Uh, what I love so much about Arnold Schwarzenegger is I'm not sure whether he knows what the film actually is or not. It's just that his delivery, like just his natural acting ability is so campy and hammy to begin with that it just naturally fits. He feels more at home in this world in these li- and saying these lines than anyone else in the film. Not that not that the lines are good, not that they are believable, but it just they he's feel having right a good time. coming out of his mouth. He's, yeah, he's, he's having, having a good, a good time. time. Yeah, I, I mean, will, I actually I, I actually open mouth laughed when uh you know when when Ivy is springing him from uh prison and you know she said and she's like, "Oh, I've got your suit. What are you, a big and tall?" And he's like, "Yeah, no, I always go a small size. I always go a size smaller so I look slim. And I'm like, that's that's, that's funny. Yeah. I like that. That's, that's great. Funny. That's, a, that's a good gag. That's a good gag. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that a good allegory for this film, and I, I, I don't even know where to start with this movie, but I feel like a good allegory for this film is Mr. Freeze's suit. There's a version of that suit that would work if it were small and if it were if it were interesting and if it were intricate. Um, they mm. are trying to make a version of the suit which is big and flashy and full of lights and maybe a little bit silly. But at the end of the day, the suit just comes off as looking like cheap plastic. Mm. And I don't know why that feels like an allegory for the film. Because this $160 million film looks like the cheapest of all of the movies by far. I, it, it's so, like, it looks to me that they just filmed the entire with the exception of the scenes from Wayne Manor I look and I'm like did you guys just take the one sound stage and then just dress it up with different set dressings for different things I mean and sometimes not even that sometimes just like red and green lights and let's go yeah 
got like you notice how pretty much with the exception again of Wayne Manor which I guess that one was shot on location or at least the exteriors you never see the sky like Gotham could be under one big giant like neon dome for all that you for all that you can tell in this film yeah I think that it's again I said this about the last one um Joel Schumacher sir director of Batman and Robin you screwed the pooch on this movie you really really messed up I am not going to condemn you as a terrible director because you have, as I said in the last movie and last podcast, you have made movies that I genuinely love. I think that Falling Down, The Lost Boys, A Time to Kill, these are movies that are actually really, really good. And there are more. So this is a director who I am not ready to throw on the trash on the on the trash fire just because of this movie that he really did screw up. He is a director who's accomplished. He has made great films before this. He has made great films after this. This was him being told. So when you look at Batman Forever, Batman Forever is absolutely the average of Batman and Batman Returns and this film. And when you watch them one, two, three, you can absolutely see the progression. You can see what parts is going to the back end of that and what part is moving forward to Batman and Robin. So this is him unhinged. This is him with a hit being told, dude, you did it. You did it. Go for it. More of, as Kevin Smith says, more of this, less of everything else because it's truly less of everything else. It is Mm -hmm. just more of the, you know, if you you know, was it enough to just have one neon gang? Now you have a huge neon gang. Like, like, like. Yeah. It is. It is. Yes, the camp is in there. But I think the idea is when I said it was like on ecstasy or on coke. Maybe I'm sorry to bring up drugs in this PG-13 related podcast, but it is so amped up to the extreme that this film, when you say camp, I think that camp must always have an element of cute to it. For it to be campy, it should be cute. Now, I know a thing or two, sir, about making films that are camp and and bad, according to some of my, my, my critics, which I don't believe them. I think they're great. But let me tell you something about Ninjas versus Monsters, specifically. I have had people call that movie out as B-movie camp, and I can tell you, we we were not trying to make it campy. We were trying our best to make the best film that we could, but given our limitations, we went for the joke when we couldn't go for the big thing because the joke didn't cost anything. And because of that, mm-hmm. the movie became a bit campy, a bit over the top, because that's all that we could do. I think that one of the things about camp is it must be, I'm not, don't say it has to be accidental. True camp should be accidental. I think true camp should be you know, the stuff like the old trauma room, films. Where, Tommy Wiseau. Yeah. Yeah. That's true camp. I think there's an element of camp, sort of a knowing and a, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge camp that can work, but it's really, really easy to get wrong. I think that Wayne's World is a film with a lot of camp to it, for instance. Yes. Um, where the, and for, they, for the most the, part, nailed that. Yeah. So, so I think that the problem with this film, one of the many problems with this film is the campy nature of this film seems like it's being yelled at you all the time. Everything is turned up to 11. Everything is so big and loud and the campiness is, you know, and I have to say the, um, the, the score by Elliot Goldenthal is so terrible um, because now it just all seems like the whole time it just seems like that's mm-hmm. what's going on all the time yeah the and there are uh you know? there are you know when 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 henchmen go flying through windows like, or what like when they're thrown through the air there are sproying sounds as they go yes. flying through the air like it's there is there is fully 
There, there is a, you know, there is vaudeville Foley artistry going on here with the yeah, sound. Yeah, and instead of seeming charming like it did in, let's say, a film that came out three years prior to this, The Mask, where they mm-hmm. did that sort of thing and it worked because that's what they were trying to do. I think that because, and we'll talk about this, that, that this film is still trying to keep one foot grounded in Batman. And then the yeah. rest of it just, and then, like, it's like it's, it's Which like might it's, have been their mistake. More, well, it's three films in once in one, right? Let's keep this in mind. It mm-hmm. is not only keeping a foot grounded in Batman, but is trying to give you an action spectacle at the same time. Mm-hmm. That it's also trying to go full on camp. And I think what they discovered when they, you know, got to the point where, you, like, this is right around the, the time you could start making any movie you wanted, and it would be worth taking a look at a movie like, let's say, Will Smith's actioner, The Wild Wild West, where suddenly you can make that is a campy film. That film is totally mm-hmm. campy. It is also trying to sell you on it's a big budget action spectacle. And those two things don't mix together very well. So this just becomes it's camp, but it's also huge explosions. And you're supposed to be energized by the action, but also still have one foot in the conflict. It's such a, a it's a film of such extremes in its point of view that I think the word the biggest word I can get and I'll say it again and again garish the film is garish garish um, is a very nice word for it yes um, I like campy stuff but like you I took three viewings to get through this I will say of the four Batman films this is my youngest child's favorite he that likes was this going one to be one of my questions. Is I mean, well, that's the thing. It's like this is a straight up Batman kit. Well, for the most part, with one very notable exception that I'll talk about in a little bit. But the uh, yeah, this is a, it's a it's a it's a kid's Batman. Like it is it is possibly uh, it is in tone the closest thing to a successor to the Adam West Batman that we have seen up to this point, possibly even since. Um, yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree with you. I think that the problem is, is A, that's wrong with, wrong for the character and B, they failed to do it's, you know, what if you could call this a, a failed reboot of the Adam West Batman? Maybe that's what yes. this is. Maybe this is the, even, the, even though it was very clear they were not trying to reboot the Adam West Batman. That is the close, like the closest it comes to success, which is not to say, say that it succeeded, but the closest you could even come to considering it in some way successful was if you imagined they were trying to reboot Adam West. It would still have failed, but would it have... It it fails a lot less as an Adam West reboot than it does as a summer blockbuster. I will put this... I I will put this out there, and I don't know this to be sure. Um, I haven't read the articles or anything, but I would bet that Joel Schumacher knew and had seen the Adam West Batman, and that he was more schooled in that than he was in the actual Batman comic books. Because I would say there are shots, there are moments in this, which are absolutely... Like the Dutch angles of the camera, things that people say mm-hmm. and do the the traps i would say is absolutely trying to reboot the adam west but i would say that this is the fact that you know, for instance barbara gordon's on a motorcycle which is you know batgirl showed up on a mo- i always loved in the batman uh tv show they would have the 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 first three the da, da, boom, you see a biff boom pow mm-hmm. and then every once in a while you'd see a batgirl kick boom and you knew that Batgirl was going to be in this episode of of the mm-hmm. Batman 66 TV show. And so I feel like this is this is 
at least aware of the Batman TV show and doing some of it. So I would say it's safe. Did you watch, you've seen the Nightmare on Elm Street films, correct? Uh, I've seen like half of the first one. Uh, you showed me, right, so you showed me number three. So yes, I saw that one. Yes. So did you ever see the re- the remake, or the reboot of, of I did not, Nightmare on Elm Street? No. So it was the plot of the first one, but with CGI and a new Freddy who is darker and scarier. His blades were bigger and, and the nightmares were more intricate and the visuals were amazing and the film falls on its face because it doesn't accomplish anything that it's trying to go for because it can Mm -hmm. do everything that it can do and i feel this is much like that this is you know here's we're going to throw everything we have at this and yet that's only part of what this film uh is do we even need to talk about how nonsensical the plot is i mean i mean not really i think what you know ironically the plot was i mean it was straightforward i'll give it that i mean it you know there wasn't a lot of intricacy to it um i mean it was not a, intricacy it wasn't I, there's a, a lot it wasn't of a logical it. straightforward but um there's a lot of plot the, there certainly was a, the, of, of all the plot there was there certainly was a lot of it i'll give you yes. that there was a <laughs> uh, so yeah, our, so the the thing um you know i talked before about how like this was a kids movie except for like this this was a straight up just children's movie except for like this one movie the one thing where i feel like and and this might just be totally personal we're out of nowhere i feel like they succeeded um so with the whole Alfred dying plot thread, um, there are there are two scenes that I actually, you know, I was just sort of watching and I actually kind of sat up and went, huh. Um, the first is when uh, Bruce has argued with Dick Grayson for perhaps like maybe the, you know, the, the second of the 17 times that he and Dick argue in this film. Um, and he goes to Alfred and he's, I, I forget what he says, but he's just like, am I, he said, am I heavy handed? Am I just super stubborn? Because that's, of course, what Dick Grayson um, accused him of and Alfred I forget the exact lines but Alfred turns around and he's just like oh yes sir of course you are and then he goes into this whole thing and he's like your parents were killed in front of you um you lost all control in that uh everything since then has been your attempt to reassert control and I think the line that he came up with he just said Batman is pure and simple your attempt to control death which is a profoundly deep realization um that certainly felt out of place in this film but but in many ways, that is exactly what Batman is for Bruce Wayne. Um, it is a... Well, I, I think that... that I'll, I'll go a step further to go. The Bruce Wayne-Alfred scenes that are just them, the the bathrobe Bruce Wayne, you know, Batman, um, I think that he... I think those scenes all play out pretty well. There's a chemistry between those two actors that really works mm-hmm. for me. There's a there's a gentility between the way that they talk to each other. They're, I really sense the love between those characters, maybe in a way that I never sense in any of the other completely oh shoot well there's when when alfred is lying on his deathbed and bruce is leaning over his bed and they're just having a little conversation then bruce just says i love you alfred and he replies i love you too sir and then bruce leans down and kisses him gently on the cheek i mean this is like i was like that is a especially for the late 90s that is a beautifully bold moment of profound sensitivity um between a character who spends the rest of the film you know in a black body armor suit, um, you know, that's kind of, you know, in, in something that is a hyper-sexualized macho suit. Um, it's actually a very tiny, sweet, touching moment. Yeah, I think that is maybe one of the only good scenes in the film, but I will, I will give, I will give that to it. Um, 
So I guess we should, I mean, we tend to go through the characters. It's really the only way to do it. Let me just say this about the plot. Mm -hmm. When I say there's a lot of plot, what I mean is Alfred has a plot. Bruce has a new love interest played by Elle McPherson. Uh, mm -hmm. Batgirl has not only her own plot with Alfred, but her own plot about wanting to become Batgirl. Robin has a jealousy plot. Uh, you have not only, not, not only does Poison Ivy have her plot, but then her boss also has his own plan. Of course, yeah. Bane has his own plot. You also have Mister Freeze, who has his own plot. Like by there, so when you talk, when you say that it's straightforward, there is nothing about it that is complex, but it mm -hmm. is convoluted. There is no. Yeah, there, it, what, what it really is, there's just a whole lot of straightforward. There's a lot of there's a lot of parallel straightforward plots going along here. Yeah, and and none of and, them. And seem because to have of that, it's like none of them ever get too like ironically, the plots never really get too intricately entwined which is why it's not complex but also that's because a lot of them never go anywhere they just sort of start and then disappear yeah suddenly you you pull off a pair of fake lips and everything's fine um so let's go through uh we'll talk about the people involved in the film we've already talked about elliot goldenthal and his terrible score um the cinematography uh i don't normally talk about the filmmaking aspect of it but it is sort of uniformly bad the sets look bad the mm -hmm. mr freeze's I mean the sets is... the sets look like what you would find on uh it's what you would like if you went to a if you went to a laser tag arena today. Yes. Probably that that's the sets. Yeah. The CGI is is terrible. It's easy to go, well, it's early CGI. Let me tell you this is 4 years. This is post Jurassic at, Park. There are no there are no excuses. Yeah. yeah, this is post Jurassic Park. This is post Independence Day. This is 2 mm -hmm. years before uh before episode 1. You know, if you can't do it maybe you shouldn't have for goodness sake you're batman you're one of the, yeah. the key franchises of the 90s you had 160 you, this movie cost this movie cost more to make than star wars episode one i mean think about wow. that. so wow. the fact that the, the fact that the cgi is bad is is unconscionable um we've talked about uh look i i'll just call it out what in the world was joel schumacher going for joel schumacher thought he had cracked the code on batman batman returns didn't do well he added color and vibrancy and fun and a toyetic uh, we talked about the last time a toyetic sense to it and he's like okay this is how you're going to do this is how you're going to do tie-ins the kids are going to love this everything's going to be big and loud and brash it's very 90s it's kind of you know it's like we're going to have the soundtrack and we're going to have all the hottest stars of the day and and you end up having um, this guy who thinks he's kind of doing it all right this guy who thinks he's got everything figured out and, you know, it turns out that in fact that he doesn't. So you just end up with a, a, a mishmash. So, so Schumacher, we've talked about. So I think the, the place to go here, let's talk about the cast and I'll go in reverse order. Do you have any opinions about Elle McPherson? Um, not really. I mean, that's the thing is just like, she was, she was fine. Her character just had nothing to it. Um, I mean, for, for the nothing character that she was given, I didn't think she, uh, I, I think she did a pretty decent job with it. Um, like, let me compare it too. So there's a lot of small roles in this film, um, many of which were acted abysmally badly. Uh, the newspaper, or like the, the newscaster, the reporter lady that keeps showing up, um, she was terrible. Um, shoot, Commissioner Gordon was not great in this film, and he was fine in the other three. Um, the uh, Coolio! Yeah, there's just a lot of... <laughs> 
Huh? Coolio. Did Coolio yeah. show up um, at one oh, point? Oh, I think he did. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, even the, the guards in Mr. Freeze's prison cell were terrible. Like, there was just some bad acting in this across the board. Um, and, Ella Mc- and compared to all of that, Ella McPherson was, she was, she was rock solid. I, yeah. Yeah, she um, did. I, she, I, I she did, did not dislike what she wrong. did. All right. um, I Pat do need to get, I do want to give a shout out yeah. to uh, the, the guy who played uh, Poison Ivy's boss, who I think then was like, he went on to play Lex Luthor's dad in Smallville. I believe so. Um, yeah, but he was, like, when he was on screen, he fed into the hand, like, he chewed the scenery delightfully. Um, for what that character needed to be and what the tone of the film ended up being, I feel like he actually nailed it. So this gentleman uh, uh, is um, John Glover. He has been in a ton of stuff, including uh, he was Dr. Savannah's father in Shazam this year. Um, oh my gosh. Uh, other other things things you can find him yes love, yes he compassion. was he, love valor compassion he was in robocop 2 he was in he was in gremlins 2 uh he was in uh oh he was he was clamp in uh in gremlins 2 i know him best as bryce coming from scrooged uh he is he yes is the guy who's coming in to replace <laughs> to replace bill murray and he's amazing he's amazing no, he's he was so, he, he, he's the like his 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 performance in scrooged is one of the best sycophants that has ever been on film um and here's an interesting thing in 1994 in the video game the adventures of batman and robin he was the riddler three years before he was in this and yes he has oh, wow. been uh he was also the riddler in uh batman the animated series and superman the animated series and the new batman adventures so this guy was doing the riddler um on this guy was doing the riddler on in the animated series at the same time he was making this film so uh so yeah this guy is his has been around forever he's a, he's a familiar face that i always enjoy seeing he was a, i mean he's been a classic stuff like annie hall and julia and mm-hmm. mountain man and, yeah and so this guy's been in a, a ton of stuff so uh yeah i actually i felt like he was a bit of a highlight he is definitely enjoying himself so i i think that's that's worth that's worth calling out um we mentioned commissioner gordon i really like commissioner gordon in the first bat and I feel like it's sort of gone downhill since. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that he's he's gone from being a, like, I never understood why they, I mean, I did, he, w- he would seem to be a throwback to Chief O'Hara from the original Batman TV series. Commissioner Gordon's supposed to be mm-hmm. somewhat younger than this, um, but he's not great. And I felt like he was good before. Um, but let's get into the real guys. Michael Go as Alfred Pennyworth. Um, your thoughts? Uh, I thought there were, for the most part, I thought he did quite well. Um, I thought there were a lot of scenes that he really succeeded in. There were a couple that just, there were a couple where his Britishness were not, where his Britishness was not able to overcome the badness of the dialogue. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we never talked about this guy. And you know, I like to call it people's filmography and we're never going to get another opportunity to do it, I think. So um, if you will indulge me, this guy mm-hmm. started, Michael Goh started in 1948 in Anna Karenina as Nikolai. Um, he uh, he was in Richard III uh, in, 19, in 1955. He was in Dracula in 1958. He was in Phantom of the Opera in 1962. Uh, he was in Alice in Wonderhand, Wonderland. He was in four episodes um, of Doctor Who as the Celestial to- Toymaker in 1966. Um, he was in Julius Caesar in 1970. 70. This guy was in 
in Henry VIII in 1972. Uh, I mean, it goes on and on. He was in uh, uh, three episodes of Doctor Who again as Councillor Heaton in 1983. He was in uh, in the 80s. He was in Out of Africa. He then he finally does Batman in 89, and things kind of go downhill. He's doing some TV. Uh, he's in the Age of Innocence very briefly, uh, Batman, Batman, and then Sleepy Hollow, and then eventually he uh, he dies in in 2010. Uh, Michael Go has had a long and storied career, and I really liked him as Alfred in the first one, and he was okay in the second one. I feel like Alfred's had a turn. Well, now he's just doing this. Uh, yes, sir. When he's trying to be sick, it's not working for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that I really get the sense that he's doing the best with what there is to work with. And it's worth noting, this guy did continue to work. He's actually really interesting in Sleepy Hollow, if you ever get a chance to revisit that Tim Burton film. Um, He's capable of really good work. I think they just want him to be, yes, sir, or sick. And that's all they're Mm -hmm. giving him. And he's doing that the best he can, but I feel for him. I really do. And that's not the last time I'm going to say this. Um, I'm going to save the best for last. Yeah, please. Uh, so the next one that was interesting to me, because I, I couldn't help but continuously be comparing uh, Arnold uh, Arnold's performance and Uma Thurman's performance in this. Yes. And I'd be curious your thoughts. So this. To me, Arnold's performance, for the reasons that I spelled out before, worked. I enjoyed his Mr. Freeze. Did I like what they did with the Mr. Freeze character? No, of course not. Did I enjoy Arnold going in that direction with the character? Yes, I did. Um, Uma Thurman, who looked like she was trying to do her hardest Mae West in this um i thought she i mean i'll be honest and like i thought she failed um i did not like her her she was neither sincere um nor was she hammy successfully like ironically enough arnold schwarzenegger was very sincere about his hamminess and that made it actually that made mr freeze very connectable to um i feel like there was just an awkwardness to poison ivy that she never got over you know let's let me talk it's interesting because as actors they both have another thing going for them in that they both of them are actors that you that are more of their character than they are their character in everything that ever seen they are both actors who are detached from what's going on in such a way that you you never quite get into their interiority um when you have mm-hmm. uma thurman playing uh playing someone um like uh like what thea wallace or especially the bride that detachedness really mm-hmm. really works it gives yes. um it gives them an other world it gives her an otherworldliness it gives uh it gives her a sense of focus um i think that she is uh, she has the capability to be a very, very good actor, but I think she's comparable to, let's say, um, uh, Sarah Connor. That sort of like she's giving a performance. Yes. The performance is something, but you, you, she never seems a hundred percent engaged in her world. And when that is done right, you know, look at her in Gattaca. Um, now she can mm-hmm. be incredibly, incredibly emotive. But what is f- interesting about the performances she has chosen, except this one, is that she will be this detached character. So that when she becomes so emotive in the moment that she becomes so emotive in the moment that she wakes up screaming with the with the with the needle sticking out of her chest or the moment where she finally does break down as the bride, suddenly your heart breaks for her because she has been so strong and so detached up to that point that when you finally get the vulnerability, Mm -hmm. it cracks you. Arnold, on the other Mm -hmm. hand, is detached because of how larger than life he is. Um, And even when he's trying to play serious, which he has tried before, what carries him through everything is that he's larger than life. I don't think that Arnold is the bad actor that 
everyone has said he is. I think that he is brilliant in Terminator 2 um, and that he does some very subtle work in that film, actually. I think that he is really good in True Lies. Um, I think that he yeah, does actually, good stuff there. I, I'd go along um, with that. Uh, the movie End of Days is not a good movie, but he is pretty good in it playing a sort of a darker John Constantine type character. Um, yeah. I have seen him do really good work. He can be funny. Um, uh, he, mm-hmm. I mean, twins? He's ex- yeah, it's twins. Uh, even another bad movie where I, that I like him in, Jingle All the Way. Um, yeah. uh, he knows, the thing is, is nothing is too, and actually I would say um, him in Predator, um, once he's by himself and there's no dialogue for him, he can be very emotive mm-hmm. and very intense and you know and mm-hmm. i think that he's like he's he's capable of doing this i think the thing is is that he knows how to be in a stupid bad movie yes and that's the and, big thing he knows he knows what to do in those cases yeah he just he just does what he does and he brings what he brings um, I think that he is bringing what he does. He comes in and he, he you know, for lack of a better term, he flexes um, and, and brings what it is that he brings. And it works for mm-hmm. this. He is the perfect example of casting an icon to do their iconic thing. Nowadays, yeah. I'm, this was not the case before, but nowadays, if I'm going to hire Al Pacino to be in my film, I'm going to write a part that is Al Pacino. And then I'm going to hire Al Pacino yeah. to play that Al Pacino part in his Al Pacino way. Because that's what Al Pacino does. There are actors that that is that what you do for them. And Arnold is one of those actors. And they wrote a thing for him mm-hmm. to do. And he did that thing that he's supposed to do. And he did it well. And that's what he mm-hmm. did. I feel like she thinks, isn't this silly? And that's the worst thing for an actor to do. Yes. You know, and to a certain degree, she kind of she she Tommy Lee Jones this one, in mm-hmm. the sense of what Tommy Lee Jones with did with Two Face. Yeah, she's um it's abysmal. So many people to kill. So little time. I don't get it. I don't know why she's doing it. She's not as good as Arnold she is dare I say let's see if I can put this out there I'm going to put her up next to maybe Nicole Kidman maybe Tommy Lee Jones but I think that at least Tommy Lee Jones seemed to work up a sweat like he's a lot of flap sweat he sucks at what he's mm-hmm. doing but he's really trying hard to do it but he's trying hard dare, I, right. dare I say that she is the worst performance in all four Batman films um, I could, I could to the point that. where th- Thank God she did Kill Bill after this because I mm. turned on her in this film. I disliked her. I did not ever want to see her in anything again because of how much she screwed this up. And then she turned around and did The Bride and all was well because she's she is a tour de force in Kill Bill and a very talented actress. And actually, mm-hmm. if you haven't seen Gattaca, she's great in Gattaca. Oh, she's um, great in that, yeah. A, yeah, a really good film. So she's the capability. Um, so now, interestingly, if, if, I may, if I may make a, a segue. Go ahead, go ahead, two, sir. She is the worst thing about this film and yet Arnold Schwarzenegger is laughed at more more fun poked about how bad he is but she is by far the worst but one actor got the brunt of the badness of this film and was called the worst thing ever to happen to Batman Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl I can equivocally say it's not the worst thing about this film not the worst actor in this film not the top three worst actors to grace the Batman films and by no means deserve to ever have been called fat girl there is not a world where any of the criticism lobbed at that poor young woman at the time was deserved or even remotely accurate. Um, And if she could hear me today, I don't agree with a lot of some of the other stuff that she said on a personal level, but I will say this to her. If I had this to to say to her and she were to go, hey, what about about Batman and Robin? They called me fat girl. They said that I was the worst thing about the film. I would say one, in no world, like one should never ever call someone fat girl. That's awful. Two, in no world were you fat. Three, in no world 
she wasn't awesome, but in no world were you abysmally soul crushingly bad. Um, I, I, we're, we're going to have to lob some criticism at her, but I, before we do, I want to say that she is in no way deserves the criticism lobbed at her. Do you agree? I don't remember any of the, I, I didn't follow any of the criticism, so I cannot say, I cannot speak to that. Brutal. Um, Dude, I br- like the heartbreaking. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, oh, wait, wait, what, what's it? Wait, we've got a, um, it was a comic book film with a female character that was not quite what the fans were expecting. And so therefore they lobbed toxic, uh, humiliating critique at them. I am shocked, shocked, I say, <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> oh, it's so sad. It's so true. I am shocked to find okay. there is gambling in this establishment. Um, <laughs> the I mean, here's the so Alicia Silverstone. You know, I have a soft spot spot in my heart for Alicia Silverstone because she was the person that I. Uh, okay, so like, so I had a a role playing group back in DC where we did like our own oh, version of, of yeah. Uh, oh yeah, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We had a Buffy the Vampire Slayer role playing group where we had our own little show, and of course, because um, you know, it's not like if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, you don't cast your characters but we were playing Buffy with our version of it so we're like well we're playing a role playing game of a TV show we need to cast the characters and I cast Alicia Silverstone after seeing Clueless I cast her as my character who was Charisma Weaver the prom queen and because of that uh, I spent way way too much time um, you know online looking at like uh, you know looking at pics uh, pics of her and thinking oh how she looks in this in this moment right here that's kind of what Charisma is doing in this one scene here but um, I wish I could say that this was in high school. I was 27. Um, it's it's a miracle. It's a miracle that I'm a that I'm a married homeowner by now. Let's just put it that way. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, in Clueless, she's fantastic. Um, I don't think Alicia Silverstone is a great actress. Um, it is interesting. Uh, uh, we all remember, or many of us remember, in Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, everyone was like, "This film is absolutely amazing," except for Keanu Reeves. Uh, because oh man, could he not handle Shakespeare? Uh, Kenneth Branagh then did a a few years later did a version of Love's Labor's Lost, where he cast Alicia Silverstone, who had much the same effect. Um, so it's no, she's not great. And I'm on this. I really do feel like this film was one of the death knells for her career as a. She was on the rise. I mean, after Clueless, between Clueless and the Aerosmith videos, she was on the rise to being like the you know to a to at least a young A lister um, or B lister at least. But after this film she kind of went down but at the same time it's uh i don't feel like she would have had the acting chops to last in the spotlight for that long anyway um all that being said there are far worse people who have risen to the same level that she has uh or there there are a lot of people who have gotten to the same level of fame that she achieved at this moment who were far worse actors than she was so let me put this out there for you as an interesting thing i can't think of anybody who could have done remarkably better sure there are good you could put a a good British actress in there could have put uh, someone from the time Kate Winslet you could have put her in here and she would have done fine she would have been feisty I guess well at the very but, least it would have made sense that Alfred's if Alfred's niece had a British dialect that would like that certainly but would the have fact is is how do you say suit me up uh, suit me up Uncle Alfred in a way that <sighs> so here's the other thing um she has been good in other things since she does a lot of she's done TV work and stuff and it's interesting you bring up Keanu Reeves because yes he is bad in much to do about nothing. He's a but good what actor. He does actually. well. He does really freaking well. Yeah, and there, there, 
you know, if you watch later things that he's done, you realize, oh, he plays this kind of character and he does this well. And this is, you know, I think that you would have to be someone of of an extreme talent to somehow make this what she does good in this. And there's not she is of, not of that caliber of talent, nor do I think it would have saved her career. Let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody gets out of this unscathed. Nobody. And yeah. George Clooney um, luckily has a career after this. Um, where he becomes he becomes a megastar, but he's more of a megastar for being George Clooney, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't have a wide, a, a giant acting career uh, after this. He is is a mogul and he is a, an actor and a director and a producer, um, but he is, you know, nobody makes it out of this alive, frankly. And mm-hmm. those who do- Chris O'Donnell um, kind of goes away for a while, certainly. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, Elisa Silverstone- it's also worth noting, um, Fat Girl didn't start with the toxic fans. Fat Girl started on the set with people being crappy to her there and drawing pictures of Fat Girl and she found them. Uh, she was miserable on this set. It was brutal. Mm-hmm. It was the worst kind of misogyny that she faced in the film. Um, and it broke my heart at the time. I felt like it was totally not fair at the time. Um, once or twice because I am who I am, I may have joined in. Um, and then I walked away going, no. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that made one of the first times I realized how brutal Hollywood can be to women. Um, and mm-hmm. since then, I, of course, you know, it's been 22 years since then. So I'm, I'm certainly have hopefully have become more aware now. Um, uh, Chris O'Donnell as Dick Grayson. Um, let me spoil it. He's my favorite guy in the film. I like him. I feel like mm-hmm. he's likable. I feel like he's doing everything. He is a solid B, B minus maybe a solid B uh, performance in this film. He is giving it exactly what it needs. Uh, I could see him in 10 more films like this and doing, I feel like everything he does, he does it well. (coughs) He's not great. He's not bad. He just, every scene that he's in, I'm like, yeah, all right. Yeah, that worked. That was pretty good. Yeah, okay. I have no complaints. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, The definition of fine um, by every good and bad thing about it, but he, he certainly doesn't fail and I think that he's the only person in the cast who doesn't fail um so when i you also said felt Arnold george Sh- Clooney, like there was no point where i felt i also felt george clooney was fine yeah all right let's get there he's the one he's the one to get to i utterly disagree with you um i think he is a terrible terrible batman fine bruce wayne i guess fine bruce wayne terrible abysmal batman um come on freeze let's go here freeze there's nothing to him just a blank slate um i, I don't I, why do you think he's okay <laughs> How can you not hate him? Because he was fine. Um, I liked the scenes that he had with Alfred. I really did like him. Like his Batman was, there were weak moments to it. I thought his Bruce Wayne, what what was given to him, he delivered it with, uh, you know, at least a certain amount of sincerity. Um, of of all the things to dislike in this, um, I don't think he was the highest one. Um, you know, he's by far not the highest one, but he, you know, there's a world where Batman should anchor the Batman film. And clearly that's not what the film wants him to do either. Um, and I see why they would cast him as Bruce Wayne, but I think that he is about as miscast as Batman as you could get. And I think that is that is a strong issue for the film. I don't think Val Kilmer was great by any shakes. 
but we can have an opinion about Phil Kilmer, and we can have an opinion about Keith. But once he puts on the cowl, he is so milk toast that there is there's nothing to there's nothing heroic, there's nothing good, there's nothing. He's like cardboard when it's on. And I think you know that what I would like to what, see him do. What I would like to see him do now is if they ever did, which of course they won't. Uh, but if they ever did a uh, a movie of Batman Beyond, um, and Batman Beyond was it was a it was also a, it was actually an animated series that came out late 90s uh, that took place in like you know the year 2030 and Bruce Wayne is now an old man and is you know so uh, he can't be Batman anymore um, but uh, this new kid uh, Terry McGinnis I think um, he finds the Batcave somehow and ends up because so he becomes the new Batman and Bruce Wayne essentially becomes his Obi-Wan um, George Clooney as great an show, old Bruce Wayne uh, you know as the sort of mentor thing I think would do great and yet when I want that when I want that to be made I want Michael Keaton I want Michael Keaton to be that Bruce Wayne I also think Michael because, Keaton would be great in that too yeah I just he doesn't have any of the darkness um, mm-hmm. he has the charm and again he has the sensitivity which I did enjoy it's it's you know people have talked a lot about who's the best Spider-Man right and they go well you know prior to Tom Holland they would go well Andrew Garfield was a better Spider-Man, but a worse Peter Parker. And Tobey Maguire was great at Peter Parker, but I never really bought him as Spider-Man. And then you got to mm-hmm. Tom, Holl- Tom Holland, who was perfect at both. And I feel like you got to a point mm-hmm. where suddenly, really, that will be an interesting conversation to have at one point, sir. Um, but you do have, you do have a. I think you reach a point where someone clued in and said, "Hey, you know, we better really test to make sure they're good in both these roles," um, mm-hmm. because I just feel like he. He, he doesn't succeed there. So when you say that Schwarzenegger is the best thing about the film, um, I say I think that he is maybe the best, but he is not the least bad. I think that Chris O'Donnell is the least bad thing about the, the film. He's I would agree he's Robin, with you on that. I mean, I, Chris I O'Donnell dig him, does not. I dig him as, yeah. Chris O'Donnell is utterly forgettable. And one of the reasons why he's utterly forgettable is because he does not fail. Yeah, he doesn't fail. Um, um, he Yeah, I think that let he's, me, uh, he is. Go ahead, go ahead. No, please. Uh, well, I was saying, so like, so we've gone through a bunch of the actors and everything. And I mentioned to, this to you on the phone a couple days ago and everything. I would like to take a couple minutes because this, this was, so this occurred to me about five minutes in and it was literally all I could think of for the rest of the film is as much as I enjoyed Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, performance in this all I could think was you know what would have taken this movie from just bad and not quite campy enough to be so bad it's good into that new territory is uh, and I know you disagree with me on this but if you cast Patrick Stewart as Mr. Freeze don't change the lines make them just as bad puns make them all of that but you have Patrick Stewart do it and here's my reasoning Um, you mentioned Wild Wild West Kenneth Branagh in Wild Wild West. That is a terribly written character. Um, I mean, so much of the movie is terribly written. But he throws himself into it with such British scenery-chewing delight that, at least for me, I just can't help but giggle with glee every time he's doing one of his, you know, every time he's doing one of his evil monologues in his atrociously over-the-top, yet still pretty solidly accurate Southern Plantation accent. Patrick Stewart would know exactly what kind of... Patrick Stewart is one of those actors, you can, you know, the stuff that he does with uh, Family Guy, um, not Family Guy, with uh, American Dad. Uh, he is the kind of actor who can recognize when what when the, the piece that he is in is not good, or certainly not to be taken seriously. He can recognize that. He can then choose to still have fun with it, and still find a way to very playfully take it extremely seriously. Um, 
the uh, you see some of the sketches that he does on Saturday Night Live. That's sort of his thing. I mean, John John Mulhaney has this mm. whole thing about uh, the way that uh, you know it's like it's the most proper way that salt and pepper has ever been introduced in their lives on Saturday Night Live. Patrick Stewart's just like, ladies and gentlemen, salt and pepper. Like you 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 put that man in that suit and have him say things like winter has come at last. Uh, I think I it think would be that a lot could of be. Fun. That could be really interesting. I think that um, it's interesting. Patrick Stewart was considered for the role, and then the role was changed to be Patrick to be uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger because Schumacher said, and I quote, uh, "Mr. Freeze must be big and strong, like he was chiseled out of a glacier," and that's why Schwarzenegger was chosen. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the role was rewritten for Schwarzenegger. I Wait, think what they the what only... they cast on look instead of talent, and it didn't work out. What? How did that happen? No, it's it's worth noting if they had. Cast Patrick Stewart, they would also be casting based on look because he looked a particular way. You know, that's all right. Fair point. Fair point. I'll grant you that. Yeah. yeah. But, no, but there's, 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 there was talent behind it, damn it. There's talent for it. And look, I don't think that Schwarzenegger is untalented either. But no. all that being said, I, I'd be, it'd be interesting to see 1997 Patrick Stewart go into a campy role. I don't know if 1997 Patrick Stewart could do it yet. He was not the lobster Patrick Stewart yet. He You're was still... right. Lobster Patrick Stewart is very like, <laughs> like post-2006. It's interesting to note that... Patrick Stewart thought that Star Trek The Next Generation was going to suck in the entire first season. He thought it was rubbish when he was doing it. It was a paycheck when he started. And yet he was a professional. He brought his professionalism to it and that's how he did it. And the cast hated him and he hated the cast and none of them got along until a few years in. And he uh, he often comes in to say that uh, that um, he, learned his, he learned a ton about life from working with all those American actors because he would he'd yell at them for like cutting up on set and just being goofballs and he'd be very serious and very angry when they wouldn't take it seriously and that is why mm-hmm. now he lo- they love each other so dearly because he he says that a lot of his personality came his current personality came from them going making him relax as a human being that makes that a lot being of sense said, yeah there is a wonderful bit um, of behind the scenes footage of him singing a birthday song to Gene Roddenberry on the set of Star Trek The Next Generation where he is walking around really silly, really ridiculous. And he can be funny if you watch him on extras, if you watch there's a Google at some point Love Boat The Next Generation. It's it's wonderful. Oh yes. Oh it's amazing. It's Mr. Wolf, must you defeat everyone at shuffleboard? I must defeat all who oppose me, Captain. It's amazing. <laughs> it's a, that, that being said, it might have been an interesting, if they were like, hey, we want you to play at camp, an interesting Patrick Stewart jumping out of his normal what he does role. Um, I think there's a world where he could have done this film after Star Trek and found a completely different career. If you put Patrick Stewart in this role and if he does what you think that he can do here, I'm not sure if he can, but let's see he was able to do it. I think that he would have had a much larger second career that wasn't dependent on X-Men, which was a very lucky break for him. Um, mm-hmm. At the time that X Men came out, to give him a second career, so I think that I think that you are you, you might be onto something. We'll never see it, but I think it would have been it would have been an, an interesting mm-hmm. take. But you also um, you make an interesting point that like really when I'm envisioning Patrick Stewart in the role, I'm envisioning 2010 Patrick Stewart, not 1997 Patrick Stewart. Um, so to get to what you said, uh, because we have about five minutes left in the show. 
what really worked for you? Because you said you were going to take a couple of minutes and talk about what about this film you really liked. Because well, we've kind of we we've talked about it. Uh, so the th- to, um, we've talked about a lot of it. Just to sum it back up, the 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 analysis of a, a lot of what the film said about death. Um, like I think it's you know first that first conversation about Batman is an attempt to control death, but then also a lot of it is you know but then part of the lesson in there was well you also can't escape death. It's um, was it? I think it was in this film. I, I've seen a bunch of movies in the past couple of days, so I can't tell. But the uh, um, I think the thing there was it's like death is not something to be defeated. Yeah, death is not something to be defeated. Victory comes in doing the right thing in, you know, while you are alive. Um, you know, there's some there's there's some depth to that. There's some good stuff in there. Um, I liked, so I liked that aspect of the film. Uh, like I said, I liked Arnold Schwarzenegger a lot. I loved uh, Poison Ivy's boss. Um, John Glover. Yes, thank you. Uh, and, and through it all, I was just thinking, I was watching and I was like, you know, if they had just... So those were the two things that I actually really liked as they were um the things that i thought i was like oh if you had just changed this i think i would have liked it a lot is again that if they had um if this had tried to be like you said a reboot of the adam west tv show uh and if they had done it on maybe a third of the budget i think this could have been a really just nice little charming film you know i'm i'm reminded of uh the emperor's new groove which has achieved sort of its own it is a it is both a a movie that is fairly critically liked as well as a true cult classic in the Disney animated series canon. And it is, it's pretty much just an entire film of bits between David Spade, John Goodman, uh, Patrick Warburton. Um, the uh, It's it's just a weird off-the-wall kooky comedy, which is not what you expect from a Disney animated film. Supposedly, as they were making the film, they were originally making it a, a Disney animated epic that was set in South America. Sting was, was set called, to like, do Eaters all of, of the Was called Eaters of the Dead or something? like that yeah it was going to be this yeah. really dark yeah. dark the, film uh, and then about halfway through they were like guys this uh this is not working at all and so then they decided well wh- why don't we just make it a buddy film and they went back and read it a whole lot of stuff and then specifically tried to do that and it is to me one of the mo- like i i will that movie comes on i will stop what i'm doing and i'm watching it there are very few That's other funny. animated film disney animated films however much i love them that i will do that with um and i feel like if there had been a point halfway through this where someone had stopped and you know seen that the emperor had no clothes on and said guys um what we're trying to do is not working but then moved on and thought but you know what we have here is we we have the ingredients for a really delightfully charming little campy thing and they had done that of course there's no way in hell the studio would have allowed them to do that i mean it was the freaking batman franchise but in a perfect world where you know people could just follow their own artistic dreams if they had done that i think we could have gotten a I think we could have gotten a film that even if it wasn't really that good, I would put, I would be totally fine having on in the background while I was cleaning the house. Like this film as it is, is bad enough that I will not even have it on in the background while I'm doing other things. Well, because I bought it, I have to. Okay. So on a, on a scale of, of one to five terribly cast acting performances. Um, now that you've given what you think is good about the film, what would you rate? The, now, that's, that's one to five actual, or one to five ice cubes, what would you give Batman and Robin? Okay, the uh, this film cannot, in my mind, get higher than a two. Um, it is, so on its own, as a standalone, uh, 
I would give this a two. Um, however, you know, as, as I've said, it's like, you know, for if a film is really good and just as a really good film, it gets a four. It To get above that, it needs to do so, like it needs to really, you know, either be just literally exemplary in everything it does or have some major impact on the superhero industry or, you know, films or things like that. Conversely, to go below a two, not only do you need to be painfully, painfully bad, you like to get a one, the world needs to be an actively worse place for this film having existed. Um, I do not feel that it has reached full one status, but this film, not only did it kill the Batman franchise, we almost didn't have superhero films because of this film, as you said. Thank goodness for X-Men because that sort of turned it around. And because of that, uh, because of not just the fact that it was not a good film, but because it damaged the entire superhero film movement, um, uh, this gets a 1.5 from me. Yeah, I'm going to have to give it a 1.5 as well um, for all the reasons that I listed. Uh, it is a film that doesn't know what it is. Uh, we could say that that George Clooney is in one Batman film or Arnold, Schwarzen- Arnold Schwarzenegger is in another Batman film. I can't even figure mm-hmm. out what it is that Uma Thurman is doing. Chris O'Donnell is still doing Batman forever. And and Alicia Silverstone is just miserable and doesn't want to be there. Michael Goh has gone from a character that I like to a, an actor I feel like is, is not hitting it at all. Pat Hingle is Commissioner Gordon is the worst that he's ever been. The cinematography is the worst that it's ever been. The sets are the worst they've ever been. The music is the worst that it's ever been. I mean, everything about the film is the worst that it's ever been. And we're not even talking about all the things that I put in the plot that is for reasons. It makes no sense that Mr. Freeze is carrying the the medicine with him. It makes no sense that Poison Ivy would want to freeze the whole world. It makes no sense that the wife is still alive. It makes no nothing, nothing makes sense sense so you have Mm -hmm. a bunch of really talented people doing their worst work in a film that makes no sense that is then you can't even feel bad for it (coughs) you know we're eventually gonna we're gonna get into the crow series uh eventually and we're going to hit uh some some low dregs we're, by the time we get to the crow four um where a film is trying and just failing eventually you know, we're gonna have to hit five years from now we'll be doing the toxic avenger where you have a film that that is trying its best with almost nothing to work we talked about roger corman's fantastic four which is a great film to compare this to that's a film that had nothing they made that film for a million dollars and yeah it sucks but they're doing the best with what they have to work with these guys had mm-hmm. everything to work with giant posters outside you want to talk about expectations don't give me giant posters and tell me it's going to be great Um, uh, this film fails at absolutely everything it's trying to do including be camp which it is trying to do it is an utter and complete failure from beginning to end Um, and it is and here's the worst thing about it it's boring like you wait for the bad moments you wait for the back credit card you wait for the, 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 the ice skates that pop out of their thing you wait for Uma Thurman's terrible performance. You can at least have something interesting to watch because the movie is is it's long, although it's not that long, and it's boring. And I it's it's I use there's a word I use. You hate it when I use it. Unforgivable. <laughs> you don't like when I say those, that word, but I can't find uh, the only reason it's not a one is because I guess it doesn't. No, I'm going to give it a one. If, if this film actively hurt society, I would give it a zero. I'd go, this film deserves nothing. It's a zero. Um, I can't imagine a superhero film that we hit that is worse than this. That being said, one day we'll have to do Son of the Mask and see what we say. 
<laughs> um, in terms of what we do next, uh, um, my proposal to you, sir, uh, right now in theater, Spider- Spider-Man Far From Home is knocking it out of the park. So I propose and to you definitely that worth we, watching. Uh, yeah, definitely worth watching. I propose to you that next time uh, on this uh, on this show of ours that we uh, we watch Spider-Man Homecoming and uh, follow it mm. up with Spider-Man Far From Home so that you guys can have a little refresher on the Tom Holland Spider-Verse while the movie is still in theaters. And if you are a good listener, listener, um, I propose to you that maybe I can find some horribly salvaged audio from uh, our Spider-Man Far From Home uh, just as a bonus, as a post-credit scene that changes about, the world. That, how that, about uh, this? Just because, I do, just because I don't want you wasting time so much. So all of you out there, and to, all of you true believers out there. Um, so we're going to be doing Homecoming. Then we're going to do another take of Far From Home, um, which I at least think I'm going to be a little bit more awake for and will be you know more insightful then but if there is lit if there is literally one of you out there that listens to it and thinks you know what i would be kind of interested to hear what the really crappy uh, with the what the really like sound uh crappy sound version was that they did before even though they probably covered a lot of the same stuff if there's one of you out there who wants to hear it write into us post on our facebook page um and let us know that you would like to that you would like to listen to that and we we'll will see what we can do yes and and you know um, what? If nobody writes in for that, the world will not be a worse place than it is. Oh uh, well, yeah. Please write in because I thought I thought it was a great show. Anyway, <laughs> that being said, uh, that that being said, thank you for joining for Totally Super for this film. Um, uh, and all I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, my name is Justin, and my name is Arthur. And hey, there, true believers, chill. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Enlight Entertainment.